Well, those of you that have seen the movie, you recall what happens next. Daniel has washed and waxed Mr. Miyagi's cars. He's painted his fence and his house. He sanded his floors. And after four days of busting his chops around the house, he reaches a breaking point. And a very frustrated Daniel explodes on Mr. Miyagi. And he complains, I thought you were supposed to be teaching me karate. And what might be the best scene of the whole movie follows. Very calmly, Mr. Miyagi looks at Daniel and he says, show me sand the floor. And Daniel begins to replicate that hand motion that was instilled in him when he worked on those floors. And then Mr. Miyagi says, show me wax on, wax off. In other words, show me how you conditioned your arms to move when you wash those cars. And then Mr. Miyagi says, okay, now show me paint the fence and paint the house. And once Mr. Miyagi is satisfied that Daniel's hours of labor have resulted in some muscle memory, he does something unexpected. He throws a punch at Daniel. And guess what Daniel does? Very instinctively, he blocks that blow. And then sensing a teachable moment, Mr. Miyagi then begins to, to, to pepper Daniel with this barrage of kicks and punches. And Daniel begins to, to put into action all that sanding and painting and waxing. And very naturally, he begins to parry these blows. And Daniel discovers that, that because of his discipline in those prior days, that he knew how to react that he knew how to respond appropriately. And there's a spiritual corollary here. For the past eight weeks, we as a church have been talking about spiritual disciplines, that is, practices that God uses to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. We've talked about disciplines like silence and solitude and confession and restitution, and you can think of these as a spiritual conditioning drills that God uses to shape our souls. And while these disciplines are beneficial in their own right, in some ways, they're a lot like learning wax on, wax off. Because the goal of these practices is that they would culminate in something greater. The end result of all of these spiritual disciplines is that we would be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And this transformation would exhibit itself, that it would manifest itself in our being able to respond to every situation the same way that Jesus would. We can think of this week's spiritual discipline as the cumulative impact of all the previous disciplines. So in, in thinking about Karate Kid, could Daniel, theoretically now, could he have could he have managed to maybe defend himself from a punch with all that waxing on and waxing off? I mean, theoretically, it's possible, right? But wouldn't we all agree that because of the sanding and because of the painting and because of the waxing that the right response became more intuitive, it became more instinctive? Yes. And in the same way, I want you to know that it's possible that we can respond in Christ-like ways 
without prayer and scripture and confession and some of these other disciplines. Theoretically, it's possible. But here's what I want you to know. It will be a lot easier to exhibit a Christ-like response if we've cultivated those disciplines in our life. Today, we're going to be talking about the discipline of response. Response can be defined as managing our reactions to what life brings us, both good and bad. Let me say that again. Response is about managing our reactions to what life brings us, both good and bad. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said this, He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough, say enough, for the disciple to be like his, help me out, his teacher, and the servant to be like his master. So it's enough for us to be like who? Help me out, Jesus. Why don't you turn to the person sitting beside you right now and say, it's enough for you to be like Jesus. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? (laughs) But you know what? Ultimately, that's the goal of the Christian life, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we would learn to think like Jesus thought, to live like Jesus lived, and to love like Jesus loved. As Pastor David has shared before, we can think of these other disciplines that we've looked at as ways we can consciously place ourselves on the potter's wheel so God, the master potter, can go to work in our lives. But sometimes, just navigating life itself can be a trip to the potter's wheel. As we go through life, we will find ourselves in situations where there's the potential for soul shaping. Because how we respond to our circumstances will either erode or advance the gains that we've made through the other disciplines. You see, God not only uses things like silence and solitude and confession, he can also use our life circumstances to shape us. Our responses to life itself can be a very formative tool in the hands of the master potter. And the reason that response is a spiritual discipline is because the right response, the Christ-like response, is rarely our natural instinct. And, and, And discipline... That's what's required when the right response doesn't come naturally. Say, for instance, that you went to the doctor for your annual checkup, and she came back in after looking at your blood work, and she said, well, you know, it looks like that uh, your sugar intake and your fat intake is a little low, and I'm going to need you to step up your consumption of, of sweets and dessert and chocolate Wouldn't it be nice to get a report like that from the doctor? Let's suppose you actually got that report. Would that require any extra discipline on your part for you to follow through with that guidance? Would would you need like an accountability partner? Would you you need a reminder app to, to help you say yes to a Krispy Kreme donut or a hot fudge sundae? No, right? We would figure that out. Discipline is what's required when the natural response doesn't come automatically. Like when the doctor says, I'm going to need you to eat kale, or I'm going to need you to run for 30 minutes a day. So with that in mind, let me ask you this. 
What's our natural response as human beings when someone insults us? When someone tries to discredit you? Or when you're in a team meeting and someone tries to insinuate that you haven't done your job? Natural response is to come after them, isn't it? Our natural response is to think about getting even. And yet Jesus comes along and says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's a response that's going to require what? Discipline. Or what about when someone talks about you behind your back? Or when a, a coworker tries to sabotage a project you've been working on? Or when someone takes a parking spot they know that you've been waiting on? What's your natural response? It's to retaliate, right? It's to want to let them know who they're messing with. It's to give them a piece of your mind. And Jesus comes along and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, show of hands. For how many of us here has that been our natural response since childhood? That's kind of what I was thinking. Me too. You, you see, the, the Christ-like reaction isn't always what immediately comes to mind. And that's why learning to respond in the way of Jesus is a spiritual discipline. Now, if you have coworkers, if you're part of a team, if you serve on a committee, if you have siblings, uh, if you have children, if you have parents, uh, basically, if you have any social interaction whatsoever, there will be an opportunity for you to work on this discipline. Am I right? Now, in his book, Soul Shaper, Keith Drury gives us a helpful grid for cultivating this discipline in our lives. He, he suggests that we think about our responses in terms of two categories, how we respond to bad circumstances and how we respond to good circumstances. So let's begin by talking about Christ-like responses to bad circumstances. You know, followers of Jesus aren't immune from difficulty. Even though God loves us, there will still be times in our lives where we will encounter things like temptation and opposition and enemies and rejection, vision and injustice and suffering and failure and death and tragedy. And we could make it even longer list, couldn't we? Because we live in a fallen world. But here's what we know. Even when, when bad things happen to us, we can be confident that God can still redeem it for his good. This is the point that Joseph makes at the end of the book of Genesis. He went through the ringer. For an extended season, his life was one setback after another. His brothers threw him in a pit, and then they sold him to some human traffickers who carted him off to Egypt. And there he was sold to a man by the name of Potiphar. And uh, things were looking up for a moment in, in Joseph's life. There was this ray of hope because he very quickly was put in charge of Potiphar's household. But that ray of hope was dashed when real housewives of Cairo star, uh, Mrs. Potiphar, 
falsely accused him of an unwanted advance, and Joseph was thrown into an Egyptian prison, and he was there for several years. Let's just say these, this wasn't exactly uh, you know, the golden years of Joseph's life. And while Joseph couldn't control what others were doing to him, he could manage his response. And I think that's why Joseph was able to look back later in life and to tell his brothers and say this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So instead of this very difficult season of life being wasted years, because Joseph practiced the discipline of response, he ended up earning a doctoral degree in spiritual formation. Now, it wouldn't be practical for us to discuss a biblical response to, to every bad circumstance we might encounter in our life. So let's just select one specific negative circumstance and provide a, a clear picture of how we might practice the discipline of response. Let's talk specifically about spiritual failure. Does that ever happen? Do we ever blow it? Do we ever mess up? Yes. And you know who also experienced failure? the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. They had their fair share of failures. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read about this event in Saul's life where God, through the prophet Samuel, instructs Saul to go and to strike down the Amalek people and to, and to devote them to destruction. So Saul summons the Israelite army, and with God's help, they go and they defeat the Amalekites. But Saul doesn't completely follow orders. He decides to take back a few war trophies for himself, even though God told him not to do this. He brings back the king of Amalek, and he decides to keep the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves for himself and for the others. And then Saul, he sets up a monument for himself. And God comes to the prophet Samuel, and he says, uh, I need you to go and confront King Saul. So Samuel sets off, and King Saul sees him coming, and here are the first words out of his mouth. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He's like the guilty five-year-old that, that's kind of been in the kitchen eating cookies all afternoon, and mom walks in, and he just stands there and said, I've been obeying all the rules. You, you just know something's up here. And Samuel said, oh, okay. Then what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And Saul says, well, uh, that, um, yeah, that. Well, uh, the people, the, the people, they spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And you know what Samuel says? He said, I'm going to stop you right there. Let, let, let me tell you what I know. And he, he just kind of recounts everything for Saul. And he ends by saying this, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? Like, Saul, this is your chance. Like, quit digging yourself into a deeper hole. Just fess up. Just admit this. And you know what Saul does? He just keeps going. He goes into denial. He starts backpedaling. He completely excuses himself for everything. He accepts no responsibility. He goes on. He says, oh, you know, no, the, 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 the people, the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things and la-da-da-da-da. And uh, 
God says, all right, Saul, I've had enough. I'm taking the kingdom from you, and I'm giving it to someone else. Saul's response to failure eroded his spiritual growth. Now contrast this with one of King David's more notable failures. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find David lusting after a married woman whom he summons to his palace and then seduces. And when he discovers she's pregnant and he can't cover his sin, he arranges for, his, for her husband to be murdered. This is a horrific sin. And God says to the prophet Nathan, I need you to go and I need you to confront David. And Nathan goes to David, and when Nathan's done talking, guess what the first words out of David's mouth are? He hangs his head, and he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no denying it. There's no trying to excuse it. There's no trying to rationalize it. And then he goes on to write Psalm 51, this, this psalm of contrition, where he pleads with God to have mercy on him. So both men were disobedient, both men had failures, both were confronted by prophets, but their responses were totally different. And and although it would have been far better for David had he never sinned, God used David's response to bring him to a place of even greater reliance upon God's grace and upon his mercy. What about when good things happen to us? I think our tendency in Christian circles is to focus on how God can use our responses to trials and tribulations to grow us, but oftentimes it's our response to good things that I think is going to have the most influence on our spiritual growth. And the reason I say that is because many a person, many a well-intentioned person has had their, their spiritual growth eroded, not by their response to hardship, but by their response to good things like success and wealth and power and talent and fame. About nine years ago, the elders of our church were praying about how God might want to use us to reach even more people with the good news of Jesus. And one of the ideas that was being kicked around was this new trend back then called multi-site church. Maybe you've heard of this. It's like one church with multiple locations. And someone shared with Pastor David these DVDs from a church conference. And one of the DVDs contained this Q&A session about multi-site with these well-known pastors, these popular pastors who were leading these large multi-site churches. I mean, these these are successful pastors. These are sought-after conference speakers. These, These are pastors with a lot of influence that are leading these growing churches. And as we were talking about the message for this Sunday, Pastor David and I, he he reminded me that, you know, success, it's not just a a stumbling block. This isn't just a warning for folks that are in corporate America. This isn't just a warning for business people. This is a warning for all of us, even, even people in vocational ministry. And thinking back to that Q&A session we watched, half of the pastors that were in that have been let go from their churches in recent years. 
And it wasn't because they were preaching bad doctrine. It was because they didn't learn how to respond to power with meekness or to success with humility. And how we respond to success, if we don't do it right, it, it can stunt our growth. Now, don't worry, we're not going to try and discuss a biblical response to all the good things that might happen to us. But just, let's just talk generally about how we might respond to more authority or more power. Let's say that you get promoted. And again, we're going to look at King Saul and King David. Once King Saul had power, his response was to use it to benefit himself. He wasn't interested in cultivating the talents of those underneath him and helping them become all they could be. He didn't want to see the people underneath him flourish. And we know this because after a promising young warrior stepped on the scene, Saul's response was to try and snuff him out. After David kills Goliath, in the very next chapter, we see Saul trying to hurl a spear at David and pin him against the wall. And when that didn't work out, Saul said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to send him into combat, and I'll put him in a real hot area, and I'll let the Philistines take him out for me. And when that didn't work out, Saul mobilized his army and went traipsing up and down the Judean countryside on a search-and-destroy mission for David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 22, we get this scene from this event in King Saul's life. It says, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. So here's Saul. He's reclining and he's got everyone standing up around him waiting on him. Is this a picture of servant leadership? No. And he goes on. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that's David, Give every one of you fields and vineyards. Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. What's Saul's favorite pronoun? <laughs> me, Right? Who's Saul concerned about? Himself. When when new talent comes along, Saul is threatened by it, and he responds to power by becoming intoxicated with it. Now contrast this with what we see King David do with his power. When new talent appears, you know what David does? He welcomes it. He's like, that's great. 2 Samuel chapter 23 provides these lists this list of of 37 mighty warriors whose exploits were, it would seem just from reading this, were were just as impressive as David killing Goliath. And you know what David does? He welcomes it. He's like, hey, can we be on the same team, guys? And and chapter 23 tells us about an event in David's life where he's hunkered down in this cave, and provisions are limited, and the Philistines are encamped nearby around the city of Bethlehem, And David makes this offhand comment. He says this, he said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well at Bethlehem that was by the gate 
and carried it and brought it to David. Like, oh, he's going to be so excited, right? But you know what David does? He would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. David's use of power is totally contrary to Saul's. He, he never intended for those men to go and risk their lives to satisfy some petty craving he had. He's like, I, I, I can't drink this and, and communicate that it's okay for people underneath me to go and to, to risk their lives to satisfy some whim that I have. And instead, David does something very noble. He, he, he offers this water to the, to the Lord in a way that really honored the dedication and the bravery of these three men. And at the same time, he communicates that he's not worthy of this kind of sacrifice. Listen, how we respond to more power and to more success and to more talent and to more influence is so important because Jesus said, to whom much has been given, much will be expected. And and here's the challenge I want to leave you with this week. I want you to pick one circumstance, maybe from this list, where you know that your natural response isn't what it should be. And if you're feeling really brave, you can just ask someone who knows you well what they think you ought to work out. Maybe a coworker or a spouse or a child. But let's just suppose you're looking at this and you know that that your, your, your response to suffering should be one of more faith or you know that your response to wealth should be more generosity. Whatever it is, you, you pick a circumstance. Don't just cherry pick an easy one. Like, pick a real one. And here's what I want you to do. And I know you're not going to like this because I got feedback on uh, the, the, the message on confession. I know that doesn't come easy for us, but here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to share this with one other person. And preferably, it will be someone who will have the opportunity to to help keep you accountable because you'll have the opportunity to live this out in front of them. So let's just suppose you want to work on uh, responding to opposition with more meekness. Well, maybe you share that with a coworker or with your spouse. And the reason I want you to do this is because there's power in this. This is what the saints, the great saints who have gone before us have done. This works. This is how we practice this discipline. But I also need to let you know this. We can't just by ourselves, through willpower, make ourselves more godly. The only way we're going to grow to be more Christ-like is if we're abiding in Jesus. Jesus said this. He said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Then he goes on to say this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do much nothing, nothing. Here's what happens. The person who cultivates a personal relationship with Jesus will come to discover 
that Christ-like responses will become more and more natural. Because here's what happens. The same way that a branch that's connected to a grapevine is going to naturally produce grapes, the person who's connected to Jesus, who's remaining in Jesus, what's going to happen is they're very naturally going to have the life of Jesus come spilling out of them. And if you're here and you know that you're not abiding in Jesus, you know that you've never made that decision to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then that's the response that you need to have. That's the best response that you can make right now. Romans 10.9 says this, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Not we might be saved, not we could be saved, not we have the opportunity to be saved. He says we will be saved. We can't make ourselves more like Jesus through moral effort. However, once we place our trust in him, here's what happens. Jesus comes and he declares us to be righteous. And then he begins to make us what he's declared us to be. He sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, into our lives to empower us and to renew us so that we then have this desire to go and to do what Jesus would want us to do. And if you've never made the decision to uh, abide in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to his invitation right now. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us when we were at our worst. We thank you for not responding to us in the way we so often respond to you. We thank you for being faithful and responding to our sin with an even greater love. Thank you for for not turning your shoulder, but opening your arms wide and inviting us to come running to you. And if you're here and you haven't responded to God's open arms, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. You can pray a prayer like this from the bottom of your heart. Jesus, I believe that you are who you said you are that you're the way, that you're the truth, that you're the life, that you're God's eternally begotten son. And I believe that you lived a perfect life and that you died on the cross to bear the penalty for my sin. And I believe that you rose from the dead and that you're coming again. And I want you to be my Savior and Lord. I want to follow you the rest of my days. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.